Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Nurses know how to solve shit. Renegades. Okay. Well, then I'm just going to make you co-host. And so you should have recording permission. You want to be, you want to be co-host too, Robert? Uh, I'm good. Okay. okay. We're, you guys thank, got it covered. And thanks again for your flexibility. Rolling. Oh. <laughs> Rolling. I'm getting one of those. Take two. Yeah. The point of that is to stop laughing and start thing. <laughs> <laughs> to be serious. Focus people. Come on. Okay. Welcome to the RNA Gade podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have a special guest star, Antra. Show him what he's won. <laughs> Today we are talking to Robert Wingo, who is a nurse. He is an independent consultant. He specializes in nurse staffing, scheduling, productivity, and FTE budget. He's an expert, and he has a lot to say about this stuff, so I'm very excited we He's, get to talk to him. He today. specializes in bu- budget badassery, and we're going to find yeah. more out about Robert. Don't forget, nurses, when you finish this podcast, you can actually get a CE credit for listening to it, so go over to rnegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro. Follow the prompts. They're really easy. There's a chat box if you have any difficulty and sign up. Now, engage. Now. Rolling. Take two. Robert, <laughs> no, no, we're no, so no. Robert, we're so glad you're here. It's been it's been a long time coming because I've been following you on LinkedIn and we stalked you for a little while and you're blowing up boxes that the rest <laughs> of the world is still trying to think outside of. And they refuse to, apparently, as well. So would you please and thank you so much for your flexibility, by the way. And that day I was poisoned. I'll tell you about it sometime. I was actually poisoned. Yeah. It was terrible. When I, when I couldn't get out it of it. It was almost But the anticipation because of that is killing me. And why don't you start with just some background beside the, you know, the LinkedIn, abbreviated LinkedIn version, why you became a nurse, if that's how you started out and what led you to be one, if not, and what you're doing now. And we'll stick a pin in it there and then get into it. And then what you're doing now and why you're doing it. (laughs) And then we'll interrupt you. (laughs) <laughs> so for, first, thank you so much for uh, for having me on your uh, wonderful podcast. Very I excited. A number of episodes and a little different, but I like it. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's see if you if you still feel grateful when we're done. But continue. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> so it's a um, little different. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I I started out my career as a nurse in oncology, inpatient adult medical oncology. But, you know, even before that, I thought, you know, hey, I wanted to go to medical school. I want to be a doctor. But then I got a job, you know, a summer job in high school as like a nursing assistant. And I kind of hung out and watched what the doctors did, and I watched what the nurses did. And I wasn't really impressed with the doctors. They, mm-hmm. just, they just seemed to be running around. They didn't get to spend any time with the patients. And as a nursing assistant, I got to spend a lot of time with the patients. I enjoyed talking to them. I enjoyed, enjoyed talking to their families. And so then I decided, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to nursing school. And this was, you know, back in the late late 80s, early 90s when I was in college. I graduated in 92. So the economy wasn't so hot back then. But, man, if you were a nurse, you could get a job. Mm-hmm. 
so I went to nursing school and while I was in nursing school, I worked as a, a volunteer EMT. And I also worked as a nursing assistant and a monitor tech in a cardiac ICU. And so I got to see a lot of cool stuff in there. The nurses worked up there and knew I was in nursing school and they would come and grab me. Hey, come check this out. And they were doing some funky procedure or this patient's got something strange going on. Come, come check it out. And so then I thought I wanted, well, you know, maybe an ICU nurse is for me. And so I actually, when, when I graduated, I got a position as a new grad in our uh, medical ICU, which was a floor up, up above where I was working in the CICU. And I got up there and I started going through orientation and I absolutely hated it. Hmm. My patients were innovated. I couldn't talk to them. The family couldn't come back except maybe like, you know, once every couple of hours. And I just, I just hated it. I so I went, you know, got about halfway through and I went and talked to my manager. I said, you know, I, I don't think this is the right spot for me. And she asked, you know, what did I not like about it? So I told her and she said, well, you know, I think I have a floor that you might enjoy. And so she went and got a meeting uh, with the manager. Actually, she was the interim manager at the time, lovely lady, at one of the uh, inpatient adult medical oncology units. And she sold me on it, you know. And so I started over there. They paired me up with just a fantastic preceptor, just an absolutely wonderful preceptor named Susan. Uh, and we're still kind of buddies. We still chat online occasionally from time to time. And uh, so this was back in the early 90s. So before the managed care revolution came along in the mid-90s. So when I started out, our patients would come back to the floor for their next cycle of chemotherapy every four to six weeks. So I got to know the patients. I got to know their families. They'd come back for their next cycle of chemo. And by, you know, after a couple of years, I was working primarily weekends. And so they would come and find me and say, hey, we're, we're back. We're down in room whatever. Please come visit when you get a chance, even if I wasn't going to be their nurse. And I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed the interaction with the patients and sort of, you know, developing, you know, that relationship with the caregiver and the families. Uh, but then the managed care revolution of the 90s came along in those dark days. And what happened was, was the chemo administration, instead of coming and be, doing it inpatient, they pushed it all to the outpatient clinics. And so then the patients only came back to my floor when they were febrile and neutropenic or they were actively dying. And that wasn't very enjoyable to me. There were also issues, you know, again, with managed care. If you go back and look at the history of nursing and the nursing shortage and everything, they were doing a lot of cost cutting. So they were, you know, cutting ratios, they were cutting staff, and it just wasn't a really fun time to be a nurse. But I was a nerd long before I was a nurse. I was writing, you know, in, in middle school and high school, I was writing computer programs for science fair projects. As a 16-year-old, I was running a computer bulletin board service where people would actually dial into the computer at home, you know, old school, before the internet. Wow. And, and, Nerd rule. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, people would have these online discussions. They would play online games and stuff on my computer. So, you know, by the, by the you know, 90s, you know, technology was starting to come around and I saw, you know, there were going to be some opportunities there uh, in healthcare with all of the data that was going to be generated. You know, we, we needed to somehow get it off of paper and into a computer. But at that time, the technology wasn't quite there. I eventually, I eventually got uh, involved, got a job with our, so I was at the bedside for about five years. And then I got a job with the, uh, our clinical informatics group as an admin, as an administrator for the clinical documentation system that they were using. And basically it was just a big computerized flow sheet. <laughs> This system was really 
at the you time. were there at the very beginning before yeah, so Turner and beginning. but listen listen to how crazy this system was it was a computerized spreadsheet right so you're mm-hmm. sitting in front of your room they were and they were only using it in the icus at the time right so you're sitting in front of your room you're charting all this stuff on the flow sheet they had some interfaces for you know like the the monitors and so forth and then at the end of the day you would print it out and yep. put it in the chart yeah so really old school so i did that for a couple of years and then i threw a very fortunate connection a colleague of mine dropped my name to a headhunter and i ended up in miami florida fun town miami. expensive town though yes miami florida wow looking at a, a neat little uh, hospital down there right on the bay mercy hospital and it was there when i got there they were actually looking to install a, a nurse staffing and scheduling system and so i kind of came along in the middle of it and was trying to get up to speed and i called i asked our rep i said hey i need i need some names of some customers I, i'm trying to get a feel for how this is going for other sites and so the company gives me these names and i call one of them so they're at a hospital out in california i said hey i'd like to talk to you about this company we're installing their product and they said no you don't want to talk to me we're getting ready to take them to court Oh. And I'm like, no, I definitely want to talk to you. But anyways, long story short, uh, we abandoned that vendor and went with another vendor. And that was where I installed my first nurse staffing and scheduling system. So I got into all of that. I did that for a couple of years. And then another very strange turn of events happened to have uh, dinner with someone. Wait, just to clarify, it was, was it your own nursing scheduling system or it was an outsider that you oh, you were vendor. choosing among oh, others no, no. it was a it was a vendor, vendor. okay vendor okay system. thank you yeah gotcha. uh, i'll i'll say it it's ansos one staff it's been around since the 80s and it's still around today nice so then I had a dinner with somebody and an acquaintance of theirs i was telling them about what i did they said hey would you mind if i told somebody about you kind of dropped your name and your information and it turns out that there is a, a hospital here in uh, Houston, Texas, where I am now and have been for 20 plus years that had just installed that very same nurse staffing and scheduling system. And they were looking for somebody to come in and basically manage it. So I took that and then that, that was where I got, you know, more involved with, you know, the budgeting and the advanced data analysis and, and all of that stuff and did that for about 20 years. And unfortunately last year, lost my, my position was eliminated due to a reorganization. So at the time that that facility was uh, using that system only in nursing, they went to an enterprise system and no longer needed just the nursing system. And they already had a team for that. So after that, I'm like, well, you know, I've got a lot of experience with nurse staffing and scheduling. This was, you know, again, last year in the middle of all this COVID mess. So I'm like, you know, what's going on with this nursing shortage? What's going on with all of this short staffing? So I decided to really just sit down and take a, take a, a bigger look at it, a wider view to see, is there anything that I can figure out on how we can do better with our nurse staffing and scheduling? Because one of my big frustrations in nursing, and you know, nursing informatics is you know, up and coming, but nursing has been really behind the curve on utilizing data to help improve things. So I got to digging into it and have found out some kind of interesting things. 
I don't know what it is about the you're just narrating your history from your beginning of your career to now. There's I don't know if it's your cadence or your draw or what it is, but I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. Like, did you feel like that? Ultra? Like, I feel like as he's describing his journey, your journey, it's been instead of a series of unfortunate events, it's been a series of fortunate events. Like there was just one thing. And then like your career. Yeah, I guess so. Cause it's like, wow. Like what's, what's going to happen? I had this, like, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. going to happen next feeling. And then you stopped just now. When it was about to go off the cliff. Yeah, that's the cliff. That'll be the cliffhanger. Yeah, wanna, oh, yeah, that's why I they mean, call it that. I probably, right? yeah. I bet. What I edge. love is, you know, you last year was like, let's dig into this. And, you know, short staffing and holes in the schedule has been a problem for a long ASS mm. time. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I graduated in 96 and it was always a problem. Mm-hmm. And now with COVID, yeah. it's just like a poop show. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And Robert's going to continue in just a moment, folks. But the <laughs> first time we spoke to him, I was like, oh my gosh, there is a pathological deficiency in common sense in staffing, budgeting, Oh my gosh. And here Robert has a very simple answer and nobody will listen. (laughs) So Robert, will will you please, what happened next? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm going to keep you hanging here a little bit. So, okay. Okay. So let's keep the tempo. So so let's, let's, let's talk very briefly about, very briefly about the nursing shortage. Yeah. Why has it been forever and a day? Do do you know how long it's actually been a thing? Forever and a day. (laughs) Well, my answer to that would be it wasn't so systemic when I started. I know that because uh, because I bebopped around and I traveled a lot. And some in some areas of the country there seemed to be a pretty bad shortage and some areas it, there wasn't. But now it seems to be systemic. So my answer to you would I'd add 10 years to my career. So my started in 96 too. I'd say it started this is my hypothesis 85, it started and it became systemic after HMOs. I would say good guess. 2005 would be my guess when it started or maybe a couple more years, 2005 to 2007, because I was in the military prior to 2005 and you got all the resources you need. So I don't really know what was going on, mm-hmm. but when I went into the civilian sector, so I don't know how close I am. Tell us. Well, Karen, yours, yours, your example, y'all are both way off, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but your example is very interesting because, you know, like I said, it was in the mid-90s where we had the, sort of the, the whole managed care thing. And what happened with that as, as a result, we saw a huge decrease from, I'm looking at a slide here, from 1994 to about 2000, saw a huge decrease in the percent of college freshmen, freshmen expressing interest in a career in nursing. And then what happened right, in, yeah. in 2000, they turned it around. Actually, it was 2002. Johnson & Johnson launched a campaign for nurses feature, future in 2002, and they actually reversed the slide of interest in uh, nursing, uh, nursing school. 
And after that, the number of enrollments and graduations actually went up. Mm. Kind of interesting. So let me, let me read a quote, to, quote for y'all. And uh, well, let me just read it. There's a quote that says, many nurses have left the profession because of being underpaid for strenuous overtime labor and always with the same story of being short of help, thereby having to do more work than a human can possibly stand. 2021. I'm just kidding. That, that, that quote is from a report titled The Economic Status of Registered Professional Nurses, published in 1947. Oh, wow. oh my gosh. Can you read that quote again? Sure. <clears throat> and again, this is from a report titled The Economic Status of Registered Professional Nurses, published in 1947. I believe that's 75 years ago says many nurses have left the profession because of being underpaid for strenuous overtime labor and always with the same story of being short of help, thereby having to do more work than a human can possibly stand. That makes me want to freaking cry. I know. 1947. And how long before that, Robert? Because that quote, in the quote, it says always complaining, right? Or something, mm-hmm. perp- something like mm-hmm. that. Well, in order yeah. for someone to say objectively, they're always complaining. That takes a while to get to that. You- right. So, 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 quote unquote, modern nursing of you know nurses being sort of the primary patient caregivers in hospitals really didn't happen until about the 1930s. Prior to that, prior to that, families would actually contract directly with the nurses for their services. And the nurses would submit a bill and the families would pay it. But it was in the 1920s when we had a lot of sort of uh, medical and technological advancements. We had innovations such as aseptic surgery, radiography, medical laboratories. And then these things led to tremendous growth in hospitals. So prior to that, hospitals were really more for the, the poor and the destitute. And the patients were taken care of very frequently by, you know, uh, religious orders and volunteers. So as the 30s, the hospitals transitioned to uh, more of a business model and they had a lot of problems with the cost of nursing and the nursing salaries. They couldn't figure out a way to deal with them adequately. So I don't know if you guys know this or if any of your listeners know this, when you're admitted to the hospital, the way that the, that nursing gets paid is they get a portion of your daily room charge, right? So it doesn't matter how sick a patient is, if they're just, you know, kind of chilling and getting some, you know, some IVs or if they've got a lot of stuff going on, they largely get the same room charge. Now, granted, you've got different levels of rooms. You've got regular rooms and ICU rooms, which obviously will will cost a bit more. But that, again, that happened in the 30s as a cost containment measure to control nursing salaries. Who do we and, give the axe to? <laughs> <laughs> and, I know. Uh, so, so yeah, so that, that, I believe that has some sort of interesting long-term effects for nursing as a profession. Well, are we and still you, doing that today? Yes, we, yes, we are. We and, are still doing that today. And so is that like a, this is the way we've always done it kind of thing? You know, I, I think so. And, and, you know, I have, I guess some questions and, and, and thoughts on that. So 
if you look back over the past, you know, 30 years or so, because when, when I graduated nursing school or when I, when I entered nursing school in the early 90s, people then were talking about the nursing shortage, about the average age of a nurse being, you know, whatever. And then when we get, and then 30 years down the road, which is where we are right now, we were going to have a huge problem with, you know, retirements, all these baby boomers retiring and stuff. So we knew about this for 30 years, at least. And we did nothing about it. Right. If you go back and look at what's been going on in the industry, I think it's very telling that there's been little to nothing done to address the patient care resource issues for decades. But the healthcare industry has spent significant time, energy, and money to expand the administrative layer. There's certainly no shortage of hospital administrators right now. And that growth has just been absolutely ridiculous. Having the, having the fee for nursing services rolled up into the room rate, finance sees nursing services as a cost that needs to be reduced, contained, and managed. And I think that says volumes about the value of nurses in our current healthcare system. If you think about the, the impact of nursing rolled up into that room rate sort of long-term, that effectively has the, that, that has the effect of excluding nursing salaries from supply and demand market forces. Mm. And so I think, I think COVID really sort of forced that issue. And that's kind of how we got all these travel nurses running around everywhere because they were offering, you know, salaries that the market was, was sort of supporting with, you know, the supply and demand. You've got a scarce resource, you're going to end up paying more for it. I mean, can you imagine too, like, I mean, I just can imagine the, the bitterness of a staff nurse when a travel nurse comes in right now and is making, you know, there for 13 weeks and making Mm $75,000. Oh yeah. They're there. I mean, I just, it it makes you want to throw up in your mouth a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody says, oh, well, we can't, we can't pay nurses more money. It's going to, it's going to, it's, it costs too much. Well, I, I know this podcast is a little different, so I'm going to say that's bullshit. If you look, if you look at, if you look at, if you look at what's been going on in the news, I mean, how many, I don't know how much you've been keeping up with it, but I've seen a number of stories of these hospitals and hospital systems that are reporting record profits. There was an, there was an article on a fierce healthcare from February 11th this year where they listed six large payers or insurance companies. And for, for just those six payers, they were reporting over $40 billion in profits. So you can't tell me that the money to fix some of these problems that we have in our healthcare system is not there. It's not there. It's there. It's just not in the right places. So get into the minds of the these administrators, the people that kind of, you know, rule this roost. Like, what are they thinking? It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to us. What? Why does it make sense to them? Is it just more money in their pockets? Well, I, I mean, I think if you look at the evidence, if you look at the, if you look at the problems that we're having and the stories that we're seeing in the news, healthcare isn't really about health caring or patients. It's about money. We, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease care system that profits off of the pain and suffering of our patients. And like I said earlier, the, the backbone of our healthcare system, which is nursing services, is treated as a cost that has to be cut, managed, and constrained. So and it, yeah, I bet you saw, it, it, saw that a lot in the world of oncology too. Big business. Um, yeah, yeah. 
It's even as sinister as I know. I mean, it's it's it feels very sinister on the surface level. I mean, you know, if people get better, we don't get paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is kind of fundamentally Ooh-y. gross. Okay, so that being said, if we increase nursing staff and nursing, you know, support staff, people make it better too. <laughs> right. And so you, you also have to look at that and you, we could go down the rabbit hole of all sorts of t- statistics, you know, looking at productivity of people and, you know, how does illness impact their productivity and the jobs that they do and, and, and so forth. But my, my, my main point about talking about nursing being included in the room rate is if you listen to what nurses are saying about working in hospitals right now, they are, they are saying very loudly, very clearly that the, the work that is being asked of them right now and the working conditions that they're being asked to work in are completely unacceptable for the compensation that's being offered. The workload is just too much. And so we've got, so you can sort of break that down, right? You can sort of break that down and say, all right, so it's working conditions. And so we can frequently break that down into issues of workload and issues of compensation, right? Mm-hmm. And so the key to getting- And then care- even when workload can be further categorized, right? I mean, you got exactly. physical workload, you got mental, emotional exactly. workload. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, COVID has really just kind of thrown a monkey wrench into things. But I think, you know, when you distill it down, the only way we're going to bring healthcare workers back to the bedside is if we improve working conditions. That seems fairly logical, right? Yeah. Right. So that means that we're going to have to improve. Does that, really quickly, does that mean improve working conditions and then not make the upper level administration so top heavy? I don't know. That may be that may be part of it. That's okay. not really for for me to figure out. But we, we need to improve improve the workload, which means decreasing the workload on each worker. Mm-hmm. And we need we also need to improve compensation, better salaries, and improving workload. We can also talk about about improving workload being hiring more healthcare workers to share the load, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the problem that we've got is is, is the funding for nursing comes from this room rate and it's basically kind of like this, you know, just fixed volume. And originally back in the twenties and earlier, nurses used to be able to bill for their services. So I I really think that we need to be looking at and exploring, you know, more direct billing for nursing services because with the current model, how are we going to fund the positions and salaries that we need to stabilize the industry right now and position it for the necessary growth to replenish the system. I'm having a really hard time seeing how we do that under the current room rate model. Yeah. So what do you see? So we've, we had this conversation when we first met a little bit and we touched on it and we've had a a lot of numbers because people are actually starting to think like you, I mean, you, you have the most, data-backed evidence space, and I love the historical context that you put mm-hmm. it in as well. Yeah. Something's got to give. Nurses have just as many, have, have a specific skill set, like doctors have a specific skill set. Why it's looked as in, in a hierarchy, I mean, doctors can't do what nurses can do. 
They don't have the same skill set. Nurses can't do what doctors can do. They can, you know, each can learn. But anyway, point being, it only makes sense that they bill. It's coded billing, just like doctors code billing. Yeah. 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 And and that and that opens up a whole new can of worms with like the insurance companies and mm-hmm. you know coding systems and you know the even the EMRs themselves. But that again, that's not for me to figure out. Yeah. My 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 whole thing is 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 how how do we fund all of these nursing positions we need? And I don't see how we do it under the room rate model. So nur- I, in my opinion, nur- nursing needs to find a way to become a revenue center so it can so it can fund itself. You think that starts with like blowing up the box thinkers, starting nursing hospitals, like nursing based hospitals? I don't, I don't, I don't think we necessarily need to to do that. I think it could work with our current, you know, hospital structure. I do think that we, I do think that we need more nurses within the leadership of these hospitals and the executives. So that's that's one piece, but we also need to get to. We also need to get to a more data-driven and, and care-centric approach to staffing and scheduling. So so here I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning. Yeah, I was going to say, stick a pin in that. Now give us, <laughs> now you're going to dart this way and then yeah. come bring the yeah. two ends together and tie them in so, a pretty little bow. <laughs> yeah, so talking about all this budget stuff. So if you go out and you look in the literature, right, there's a lot of, information out there on how to create a nursing budget. A lot of good information. And, and I will say there, there are multiple different mathematical approaches you can take to develop nursing budgets and they'll all get you to the same end result. It's just a personal preference. But one of the things that I've discovered is there's actually one budget methodology out there that has a serious flaw in it. And it looks like this budget methodology is actually in use in a lot of hospitals. And what happens is, is when you go to, to build a nursing budget, you typically figure out, well, how much staff do I need to take care of given volume of patients at a particular level of care? And we say, you know, I'm going to have an average of 30 patients per day and I want to take care of them at a one to three ratio. It's maybe a telemetry floor or something. So you need, you know, 10, per, 10 nurses per shift for that one to three ratio. And you can add up all their hours and figure out, well, I need to hire this many people to provide that level of care. And that's great if nobody ever gets sick, nobody ever goes on vacation, but you've got to hire some extra staff to provide that coverage so people can have time off. And that's where the problem is. This flawed budget methodology, there's a, they're using an incorrect formula and figuring out that extra that they need to hire to provide coverage. And it produces a shortfall in the number of, of positions that they need. And just people don't, they just don't realize it. The really scary part of this is the, the work that I've done here over the past several months is we have three high profile professional organizations in healthcare that are teaching this flawed budget methodology to nurse managers. You kind of got to get it, take it out by the root. <laughs> Or yeah. it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And w- when I originally when I originally uh, identified this problem, I actually wrote. I found a journal article that had this bad math in it, and I wrote to the author and I said, "Hey, I have some concerns about your article and the formulas you're using in there." And I, backing up just a little bit, the way I found out about this error is, you know, I was researching 
all of this stuff and budgets and trying to learn a lot more about it. And I bought a book on healthcare uh, finance by a professor, William Ward. He's a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And he's been teaching graduate healthcare finance classes for years. And in his book, he specifically calls out this error and says, don't do this. Don't use this specific formula because if you do, you're going to end up short-staffed. So I found this article. I wrote to the author. I sent you know, information from Professor Ward's book. I provided a mathematical proof, the flaw in her math and the impact it was going to have on the, the budget and the staff. And I got a very polite email back that says, well, and this person that I wrote to, they are very well known in the industry. They are considered an expert on these topics and have published numerous articles and, and so forth. Got a very polite email back where they said, well, I've always done it this way. And not only have I always done it this way, I've worked with three big consulting firms and they do it this way too. So that was my first clue that Houston, we have a problem. And I can say that because I'm in Houston. Yeah. My God, kills me, Robert. Yeah. And so that's, that's just sort of the beginning of this journey. So then I set about, um, especially over the summer, I've spoken to a lot of uh, PhDs, DNPs, executives, finance people, nursing influencers, nursing innovators, and I'm, I've got nowhere. What is nope. the, like, it, pathological deficiency in common sense? Mm -hmm. Here's a big problem. Here's a simple That's solution, or at least a simple improvement, at least yeah. some breathing room, mm -hmm. some space, stop the bleeding. Mm -hmm. And nobody's listening. What is the, what are the common things you hear besides we've always done it this, way. this way? I mean, well, because I was... they, because you lay it out for them, you show mm -hmm. them the flaw yeah. in the thing that yeah. they're doing. And that's the thing I would, I would love for somebody to come and look at my work and point to something and say, you know what? You missed something here, Robert, you're off. Nobody's done that. And so they say, we've always done it this way. I've gotten that, you know, a handful of times. Some of them are just confused and don't either that or just don't really want to get involved. I actually reached out to an academic, somebody that's in academia who has actually done quite a bit of work on the nursing shortage and the nursing workforce. And they literally said, I currently don't have any interest in this. I'm working on something else. Maybe you should go talk to this other person. So, so I'm actually in the process of talking to that other person. I have a Zoom meeting with them next week. So lots of, you know, sorry, you know, go talk to this other person. But then the, the big thing is, and I got this from a lot of people, they said, Robert, nobody's going to want to talk to you because they're afraid of how much money it's going to cost them. Well, it's going to, isn't it going to save them ultimately? Well, can you, you, know, can you for, for the yeah. people, for everybody listening, is there a simple way? to explain what you mean. Like when you say like a, a little more detail, a little more specificity around it's the way they're hiring those extra people to cover for time off and uh, yes. how that's leading. Wh what is it doing to budgets? So you, you end up with a, with a shortfall in positions. It's about a two to two and a half percent 
shortfall, which really doesn't sound like much, right? But if you look at, and so if you look at it for just a single unit, it doesn't really seem like it's going to impact that much. You might be talking about a loss of a loss of a few shifts per week, right? Okay. But but if you ex yeah, but if you extrapolate that for a an entire facility. So but budgets deal in something called FTEs, full-time equivalents. And basically it's just something that says it's one full-time equivalent is equal to 40 employee work hours. And that's typically how many hours an employee has to work per week to be considered full-time. Generally speaking, and according to Professor Ward, when you're building budgets, you a good starting point is you know 85% productive time, which that's your time you're taking care of patients. And then 15% non-productive time, which that's all of your non-patient care stuff, your sick time, your vacation time, your education time, those sorts of things. So that's generally a good starting point. So if you have a hospital that needs 500 nursing FTEs and you're using that 15% non-productive time in your budget, you end up losing almost 32 12-hour shifts per week because of that error. Wait, it's the it's the non-productive time. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Are they so? Are they because when I, I when I was when I was bedside, that it didn't seem like that ever got calculated. You know, like it didn't get actually calculated. Like I would have non-productive time, mm -hmm. education, or whatever, but it didn't really it didn't ever seem to go anywhere. Well, it's it's factored into the budget process because we know that, okay. you know, each employee, they're not going to work all of their over time. Okay. They're not going to work all of their you know, 40 hours per week is 2080 hours per year. Okay. And so you're not going to work all of that doing patient care. You're going to take some of those hours as vacation time. Some of it may be medical leave. Some of it may be education, whatever. So is that what, like paid time off? So yeah, okay. yeah. So it would it would it would be anything that was not direct patient care. So so you know how I said that for that 500 FTE hospital, you'd be short about 32 shifts uh, per week. Mm -hmm. If you annualize that for an entire year, that means you're going to be short almost 20,000 patient care hours. That's that's over 1,600. It's a big hole. Shifts. So yeah, because so hole. because they're not figuring that correctly, mm -hmm. that's why that's why you're short all the time. Mm -hmm. So what? How, why? Okay, then how how do you figure it correctly? Because it seems like a simple it seems like simple math just when you say it like that. And you know the funny thing is, is it's it is actually extremely simple math. Like I said, there's a lot of a lot of articles in the in the literature out there about how to create a nursing budget, but there's almost nothing out there that tells you how to take your nursing budget and create safe and effective schedules for it. So we know from the budget, we know how much it takes for our, for our average, for our average volume, our average census. We know how much we need to put on the schedule to take care of that. That's pretty fixed mm -hmm. unless you go and you recast your budget. So on, on my blog, I can finally pitch my blog here. 
That's on my blog, on my blog, I actually have an article called A Care-Centric Approach to Nurse Scheduling, where I explain this very simple formula that nurse managers can do. They can do it on the back of one of those, you know, paper towels that they maybe wrote some vital signs on, which you can get yelled at for now. <laughs> and so I'm sure, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners have had the experience of, you know, the nurse manager posting a schedule alongside an overtime sign-up sheet, right? Oh, yeah. All the time. And, That's just yeah, that, normal. Yeah, that, that was the thing when I was a nurse, you know, 30 years ago. Totally. And what happens is, is the, the nurse managers, because, you know, you're going to submit a vacation request, you know, weeks to months in advance. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got, I've got a wedding I'm going to in September. I'm going to request off for that right now. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, is when the nurse manager, when they sit down in front of that, in front of their computer to work on the schedule, they have absolutely no, absolutely no concept of how much non-patient care time they can schedule, that non-productive time, while leaving enough resources mm. to schedule for the patient care shifts. Okay. And so this was so this was my big aha moment in working with these budgets, because budgets and schedules and and staffing, they're from from the really nerdy perspective, they're all just collections of mathematical formulas that are somehow linked together. And when you figure out how all that stuff links together, you kind of learn some pretty interesting things about it. And so what I've done, and so what I'm proposing is that nurse managers, they need to be flipping that process instead of making the non-patient care shifts a priority. We need to prioritize patients and patient care. So what you do is you look at your budget and, you know, one of the fallacies of a budget is when you get it, you say, Oh, well, I've got, you know, this many positions or whatever and this much non-productive time. But the problem is, is that's your best case scenario. That is, your, your budget assumes that you're, you know, fully hired. You've got nobody on orientation. You've got nobody on, on FML. And you don't have anybody that's temporarily assigned to, you know, a COVID unit. But units never look like that. And what happens is, is those vacant positions can very severely impact the amount of time that you can assign the non-patient care shifts while leaving enough for the patient care side. So, so oh, go ahead. Well, my, my question is, you said when you first started going into this that they're not going to, they don't want to change because they're afraid it's going to cost them too much money. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that, because you have that overtime sign-up sheet. So uh-huh. the patient care hours that you have to make up for your shortfalls are more expensive hours than if you just worked it into the budget, correct? So isn't it going to actually ultimately save them money and actually improve working conditions for nurses and patient safety? I, I, I think that that remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, Part, part of the, part of the challenge is, is that we've got, we've got a lot of these, I believe we have a lot of hospitals that are using this flawed formula. So they are more short staffed than they realize because of this formula, you could have hospitals that need to be posting dozens more positions than they actually have posted. And then the challenge is, is where are you going to get those positions? Okay. I just take me back a tiny bit because you said something about, patient-centric budgets and that we focus on the non-productive time, right? And 
part of it seems to me to be a problem of, you know, you have these nurse managers, they're not administrators. They're, they, it's like they're trying to piece this puzzle together and they don't really mm -hmm. understand. Exactly. Exactly. Because so, like I said, there, there's, there's nothing that tells them, you know, how, how to make a schedule and be sure you leave enough for your patient care stuff. And they don't even understand that. All they know mm -hmm. is they got to cover, you know, nurse X's wedding and nurse, you know, Y's baby post, you know, partum leave or what, right? Like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And it does seem in my experience, like that's critical. Like they, they get in their little huddles and they, you know, frantically try to figure it out, but there's no broader context about where that's going to leave them, what that means. And the, mm -hmm. like, so seems like a, a huge deficit. Yeah. So let, let, let me see if I can walk you through sort of an example of what this would look like. So let's say that I've got a, a unit that's like a med surge unit, an average of 24 patients per day. And we're going to do a one to four, one to four ish nurse to patient ratio, which in, in today, that would just be awesome. I think. <laughs> for most people, right. <clears throat> And so, so we've got, you know, 24 patients, one to four. So we're going to have six nurses scheduled on each shift. And when we go through all of this rigmarole and figure out the budget, we want to say we want to have, you know, 15% of our, of our total patient hours. We plan to have that uh, be used for non-patient care stuff. That gets us to a total number of, of RNFTEs for this unit, 25. And so that's a thousand hours. And so 15% of that is going to be 150 hours per week that we have to spend on non-patient care stuff, mm -hmm. which that sounds like a lot. That's like, you know, almost a little over two and a half shifts, two and a half, 12 hour shifts. Oh no, that's eight hours. I'm looking at my calculator. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's 12 and a half, 12 hour shifts that you can schedule per week. That sounds like a lot. You can do a lot with that, but your units never look like that. So mm -hmm. let's say that we take this unit and, we're going to be short a couple of positions. So we go from 25 to 23 full-time equivalents, FTEs. Mm -hmm. And we've got two people on leave, two people on orientation. And let's say we sent somebody to a COVID unit. That sounds like something that might be happening on some units today, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to guess how much? <laughs> I mean, you, you it know? sounds reasonable that yeah, yeah. that would happen. <laughs> So, so, so now we have uh, 23 FTEs because of our two vacant positions, but we need 21 and a quarter FTEs for our patient care needs. So if we take the 23 and we deduct out what we need for patient care, because we got to do that first, and then we subtract a couple of leave FTEs, a couple of orientation FTEs, and that FTE we sent to the COVID unit, how much time do you think we have now for non-patient care shifts to schedule? Negative. That's bad. You're yep, in, bad. you're in the red. Red. Severely. So, yep. So I'm, I'm now 130 hours in the hole. Holy cow. And that's an average week. Like that is, that is like normal, yeah. normal pants. Right. And so it's, it's very easy, especially on these smaller units to, to actually be in what, what I call a, a negative non-productive situation to where before you even sit down and you grant that first PTO shift, you're already in the hole. Yeah. Hmm. And so I think it's, you know, this understanding. Now, if I, if I go back and say, 
I go back and say, well, you know, I did. I got all my leave people back. My my orientees got off of orientation, and I got that, and I got that fully back from the COVID unit. But I still got those two vacant FTEs. So now, now on this unit, I'm down to only seventy hours per week, and that's probably going to get eat up with my sick calls. Most you know, assuredly. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that, that's that's only five twelve hour shifts. Most so assuredly. Right. So I'm not in a negative situation, but I can certainly look at my average sit calls for a week and figure out, well, I'm in the hole. And so now for me as a nurse manager, understaffing becomes a very conscious decision because I understand how the decisions I make on my schedule are going to impact my scheduling capacity. And it's your schedule that becomes the foundation for your daily staff. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I talk about by, you know, a care centric approach to scheduling is we we look at the resources we have we sort of mathematically pull out the resources that we said we needed for patient care and then what we've got left over is what we can schedule for all the non-patient care stuff now unfortunately when most places go through this they're going to they're going to discover how short staff they really are and they're going to freak out but what it does do is it gives them valuable information and data that you know everybody in this process can use. They can take it to their staff and say, oh man, we're, we're in a world of hurt here. Here's just the reality of it. This is what it's going to look like on our unit for, you know, until we get some more staff. But it also gives them ammunition to take back to their CNO and to finance to say, how do you expect me to work like this? You know, how, how short staff do you want me to staff my unit? You guys, you know, leadership, y'all need to provide me some guidance here. What's acceptable and then you can use it to help advo advocate for your Before staff. Before you answer that, I'm hitting record, <laughs> so I can so I can print it in the paper and play it on the news. How <laughs> how okay you are with the severe staffing shortage for our nurses? Yeah, absolutely. But even but even if they use that that formula and they realize how short they were, like it, it's hard to hire. Absolutely. So, so it's you... it's a vicious cycle, right, Andre? I mean, like, it's, it's hard to hire because of the conditions. I mean, coming full circle to how, you know what you started out talking about, the working mm -hmm. conditions. You have not getting enough pay, and you have the physical, mental, emotional burden of being a nurse on a short-staffed unit. Uh -huh which is yep. everywhere. So right. nobody wants to go into nursing anymore because of the working conditions and nobody wants to improve the working conditions because of the budget. Right. So mm -hmm. you have to stick, you have to take the wrench out of the spokes somewhere. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, do you have a plug and play solution? I know that any solution with a corrected budget is going to be a trial and error because so, so many people are not doing it that way. Yeah. But do you have a solution that you could Try this first. I've crunched these numbers. I've been doing this for almost a year. If you're willing, I can show you this to try first. So, you know, in, in, in order to solve a problem, you have to understand it first. Mm -hmm. we, we have to be able to measure it to determine first how bad the problem is. And then if we change something, are we improving? So my, my thing is, is, you know, everybody knows, you know, that whole term garbage in, garbage out. You get crappy information. If you start with crappy information, you're going to end up with crappy results. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what's happening in a lot of facilities today. Uh, they don't understand their budget. They don't understand how to create safe and effective schedules with it. And just this one simple formula that 
you know, you can go and read about it on my blog. It's one simple formula. I would just like to ask the nurse manager, try it out. See what numbers you get, right? And then what can you do with those numbers? Do you, do you have enough time to grant your staff off? Probably won't. But then, you know, I've also got some other articles on there that explain the budgeting process a little more. And so, Robert, are you saying are you saying that your if if they just tried it, what they're going to find is kind of like the like what am I trying to say? They're they're going to be really shocked yes. about how really how so it's not quite yet a solution, but it's education so that they can see what the problem is. It's education, and and that is that is a large part of of what I am offering that that first basic little formula will, will, I believe, help out many, many nurse managers and facilities better understand their problem. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more that you can do with that. There's a lot of additional things you can do on your unit or at your facility, you know, looking at the data that you need to effectively monitor that Mm -hmm. business process improvements, looking at the systems that you're using to manage this, are they actually configured in a way that's going to give you information to effectively manage this? Yes. Yes, Karen. (laughs) <laughs> I was for for those of you just listening. I was vigorously raising my hand. <laughs> we can edit this out if you can't answer it, or you just don't answer it. Mm-hmm. Are you working on a software solution for this? <laughs> because like you plug in your dollars per whatever, so it's okay. So you can use it anywhere in the United States or even in the world. Your FTEs needed da 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 da, and just spits out according to your correct formula. I mean, trial and error, right? But more correct formula so that they can try, like, have you worked on that, you nerd? I say that as a high compliment. <laughs> we can probably cut that one out. I, 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 don't, I don't think, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's, there's not any, the thing about this formula that's just so crazy is, is that there's no real secret sauce to it. It's basic middle school level algebra. I mean, it's not a, it's not a secret. The, the, the secret sauce is sort of the domain expertise and knowing what to do with it. And that's where I come in. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Makes so, sense. so they, they do this formula. They talk, realize. Talk that about it. Sorry. Talk about a niche consulting business. Apparently I'm the only person that understands this, which I just find just absolutely insane that we've gone this many years and nobody has sat down and looked at this really from this angle, at least that I can find. If there's somebody else out there that's figured that figured this out, I'd love to talk to them and maybe we can brainstorm about why the heck is it that nobody wants to listen at this. Nobody but Robert, to- if you, if you, if you, if you feel like this would really shine a light on where the gaps and the holes are and really like help people understand, mm-hmm. you know, that this is, this formula is not going to cover it ever. And we're always going to be in this hole that we're in. And then you talked about early on this, this idea of disease care system and money, like where do you find the actual solution? I mean, I understand that making you a, some us aware of it first is, is paramount, mm-hmm. but then what? Well, that's what I've, that's what I've been trying to do. Like I said, you know, last summer, last fall, I tried to engage a lot of people, a lot of leaders in the industry and got nowhere. So I thought, well, maybe a grassroots approach might be a good way to go. So that was part of the reason why I stood up my blog at the beginning of the year and I'm posting information out there and, you know, hitting up areas, trying to get 
you know, nurses, nurse managers, CNOs to take a look at it. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find people in the industry that can help to facilitate this discussion because what I've got is a small part of a very large problem. Mm-hmm. Number and, one, Ted talk, or actually even better, more specific medics. Like if we, we need to get a petition and nominate him or yeah. get him in front of a lot of people, because if you can get this in front of enough people, then it changes the, it changes the tune of I'm afraid to embark on this by myself because it's such a novel idea. And it's, it's true. I can see it's true, but I don't want to be the first one to, I feel stupid if I don't do this. Oh my gosh. It's so obvious. So it just, you just, you just need a huge megaphone, much more bigger yeah. than the one you have. So yeah. enough, enough people know so that they feel stupid for not doing it that way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and that's what I'm working up to. That's why I'm doing podcasts now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, but one of the other maddening things is, is, you know, I've reached out to leaders. There's, there's actually a paper, I believe, that was published in 2020. It was a joint report by uh, AONL, the ANA, and HFMA, which some people may not be familiar with. HFMA is the Healthcare Financial Management Association. So it's the money guys. Healthcare Financial, HFM. Yeah, HFMA. Okay. And they they wrote, uh, the leaders from those organizations wrote a joint uh, report on the optimal allocation of nursing resources. They called it the business of caring, promoting optimal allocation of nursing resources. And what they called for was increased communication and collaboration between nursing and finance around a lot of these staffing issues, which is what I'm trying to facilitate. The problem is is that I've reached out to these authors and gotten into contact with some people at these organizations. I had somebody that forwarded my information to a senior policy advisor at the American Nurses Association. That was a couple of months ago, and I've never heard from them, even though I tried pinging them on LinkedIn. I've now had two directors from the Healthcare Financial Management Association basically ghost me after talking to me about what I found out, and they've just stopped responding to emails. So, can I mean, you can you send? I don't know if I should be saying this on on this anyway. <laughs> can you please send us their emails? Uh, the reason I ask is, and Nurse Keith, mm-hmm. and whoever else in the audience hears this, a I mean, like a you talk about grassroots. Right? Yeah. you said that you wanted to increase communication and collaboration between a nursing administration and a hospital administration or whatever, however you said that. And that is your stated goal. Someone has a solution and you're ghosting him and we have a problem with it. Yeah, we can certainly talk about that. Yeah, something like that. I mean, because I have this tightness in my belly right (laughs) under my sternum after talking to you and I feel like roaring, like seriously. But do I mean, you, but Robert, I, I still, but I still want to know, like, it's going to show people what the problem is really mm-hmm. clearly, but what is the fix? Like, what is the solution? So the, there is no like one single solution the, the the, we need to get people together to talk about the problem and strategize on how, how do we tackle this? It's like yeah. eating an elephant. It's like eating an elephant. Where do you start? Yeah, do you it's like have it's any like sense about that though yourself. Uh, well, I, th- I think a good what starting you, point is 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 thoughts? educating managers about how to how to 
better understand their budgets. Okay. Um, because unfortunately, at a lot of facilities, their their budget information is just sort of handed to them from finance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, again, sort of the goals of that paper of increasing communication, collaboration, and understanding between nursing and finance, okay. which is one of the things that I'm very interested in. Okay. And then that leads to a lot of other things because you get nursing and finance talking and they go, right. oh my God, we've got a problem here. We're sort of in the hole more than we thought we were. And then hopefully discussions go from there. Right. So you need a top down. I don't, I don't like to say it that way. A global meeting of hospital administration, nursing and finance and administration and a big powwow, a big awareness section session. Like this is the thing now. And, and then the solution is to actually over budget for the change just because you don't want to, you don't want to under budget because that could be hurtful. And there's there's so many unknowns. So you actually have to have people willing to, and I'm speaking, I don't know where this language is coming from. I don't know anything about finance. It just seems common sense wise. You actually need to have somebody, a hospital willing to overfinance the change so that they can well, collect data, you know, even like a yeah. short-term thing. So you can collect the data without hurting patients, hurting staff, mm-hmm. or making people too uneasy. And then, you know, scale back or, or tweak from the, that. I, well, without me knowing anything, what do you, what would you think? Well, I don't think we necessarily need to, you know, overfinance it. If you go, if you go and you look in the literature, there's a, a ton of stuff out there that looks at the, the impact of understaffing on a wide variety of quality, safety, and financial me- metrics. Tons of research out there. Mm-hmm. That, you know, let, and actually over the, the, the course of the pandemic, we saw some pretty, oh man, I got to find my article because I've got another article where I talk about uh, nursing assistants. Oh yeah, I saw that one. But there was a huge increase in pressure ulcers and falls and urinary catheter infections. And all of that stuff is the direct impact of not having enough patient care resources to do things like answer call lights, mm-hmm. do the, you know, bathing and turning and skin care on right. patients and, and that sort of thing. So, nursing assistants right. and CNAs so, and why are we not hiring them in bigger volumes exactly. because they don't cost exactly. as much. Well, and you know, it's, it's not just the CNAs. So see, this is a huge problem. We also, we also have a serious problem with our nursing education pipeline. We just don't have enough bandwidth in our nursing programs to provide all the nurses that we need. And a large part of that has Mm -hmm. to do with the absolutely horrible salaries that are given to these nurse educators that are asked to go out and get their MSNs and their PhDs. Mm -hmm. And then we give them these horrible salaries and who wants to go go get a PhD and work for $45,000 a year? Probably not a lot of people. And so we've got a lot of problems there. And one of the other things I think we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot. I know that, you know, Magnet and this all BSN, you know, staff is a pretty lofty goal, but the numbers just aren't there. No. Nope. And, and the, the, the BSN pipeline cannot fill the need. There is so, actually, we've, we've talked to a couple, uh, we've had a couple of people on our podcast who are doing different kinds of rankings. So say you have, uh, you have Magnet, right? Which to nurses is meaningless. It makes hospitals think they, they think it makes them look good, but it actually nurses kind of avoid it, but there's other nurses, let's say call it bananas. So bananas takes actual data collected from nurses about working conditions Mm -hmm. and employee satisfaction and patient safety and all that. 
And so if you have a bananas accredited hospital, that's where nurses actually want to go, not the magnet. So there's nurses working on innovative things like that, which I think is really, really important. Uh, So there's changing, but it's like the Titanic is headed for the iceberg. Everybody knows it. And what you're saying is, okay, we know we need to turn the ship. So you have enough people you can convince, turn the ship away from the iceberg, but there might be other ones. <laughs> yeah. you know, so you once you yeah. turn the ship, you don't know if there's other mm-hmm. landmines out there. Yeah, but but t- talking about sort of, you know, the overfinancing of it, like I said, I think we kind of painted ourselves in a corner with the push to have, you know, all BSN staff in some of these, yeah. in these sure. magnet hospitals. We pushed out a lot of fantastic ADNs and LVNs. Oh, we sure in did. Those, in those facilities. And the bottom line is, is that we need more caregivers at the bedside. Mm-hmm. I said caregivers, not nurses. Right. Right. I said caregivers, not BSNs. So it's a numbers game at this point, And we're in a pretty grim situation with the numbers. So just sitting down and being real about it, looking at it, where are you going to get these numbers? Well, we may, we may want to, and some people are starting to do this. We may want to go back to the future and look at team nursing where you've got RNs and LVNs, and maybe you've got a mix of you know, BSNs and ADNs and LVNs, LPNs, and nursing assistants. We, we need eyes and hands on our patients to prevent things like falls and urinary catheter infections yeah. and pressure ulcers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, some, of, some of those resources are not quite as, quite as expensive as those BSN nurses. You know, the, the nursing assistants just have really, in my opinion, very horrible wages for the work that they're asked to do. They have some of the highest on the job injury rates of basically any job. And uh, they, they also are very stressed out. If you go and hang, I've been hanging out in some of the you know, online communities on Facebook and other places. And these CNAs for the, the paltry salary that they're being offered, they, they are experiencing the same stress and anxiety and moral injury that our nurses are. Because many of them do care very deeply about their patients and are very proud of the work that they do. But when they, when you give them, you know, basically twice the assignment that they really should be caring for, uh, they, it really does not enable them to do the, to do a good job with what they need to do for their patients. Well, again, they're doing, they're utilizing a different skill set than the nurses are. Well, actually right. they should be, because now it's like nurses, that's like almost like interchangeable. If you don't have a, a mm. CNA or an LVN, then the nurses just do that. But it should be kind of compartmentalized. This is your role and you bill for it. Right. This is nurse's role and they bill for it. And this is a doctor's role and they bill for it instead of it all being lumped into one thing. Right. And so, you know, one other thing about the, the nursing assistants, this pandemic has been very Long-term care facilities and nursing homes have traditionally had a very difficult time maintaining staff. And I believe one of the reasons is, is that what I figured out with my work and sort of this care-centric approach to scheduling is that the smaller the number of FTEs, the harder it is to not get into that negative situation, that negative non-productive time situation. And so in hospitals and in long-term care facilities, really the only way you can maintain a stable supply of nursing assistants is if you have access to some sort of flexible resources, such as a float pool Mm -hmm. or an agency. That's the only way, because otherwise you will always be short. But if you wanna maintain a stable supply of nursing assistants, because of the typically small numbers that are employed on both hospital units 
and long-term care facilities and nursing homes, it's virtually mathematically impossible to not be short-staffed unless you're using some sort of flexible resources. And then it costs a lot of money to do that because they get paid more in my experience. It does. But then you're also talking about, you know, overtime and burning out your staff and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I you know, the, 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 the question about cost is a really tough one because you have to weigh, you know, the cost of a fall. I think the average cost of a fall is something mm -hmm. like, you know, $14,000 and it increases their length of stay by over six days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so you have to really... And that's the thing, it's very complicated. It's hard to say, you know, how much is it going to shift the needle one way or the other because it's just such a complex problem. But I think we have to start somewhere. And right. why not Why not start with, with better and more accurate data? I mean, mm -hmm. how can you go wrong with that? Right. The education and the awareness around the problem and what really is the problem, it seems like yep. a very logical first step. You would think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, Robert, I... I don't know. Let's see. Drinking. I just had like 15 things to say at once, like drinking from a fire hose. Number one, I think you're, it's incredible what you're doing. You don't have mm -hmm. to do any of this, but I could tell you just, you just ooze passion for it. And the fact that you haven't given up yeah, when people awesome. keep turning that. you down, that it drives you forward more instead of, you know, makes you give up. I think that's mm -hmm. heroic. And not only that, it's infectious. I'm telling you, like I do, I yeah. have a tightness behind my sternum. I want to mm -hmm. say, get this man a mic, like, you know, a bigger one. And how can we help you? Helping to get the word out. And if you guys have any other, any other contacts that you think would be. Have you ever, helpful? have you ever heard of, um, Otful Gwandi's work? No. He wrote the checklist manifesto and he's a, he's a doctor practices in Boston, but he has several books and I, he has a nonprofit and they're the name of, I can't think of the name right now, but the name of the nonprofit is from, from, it comes from the Greek gods and it's the simplest solution to fix a problem. And so he was the one that went and did all that research on timeouts in an operating room. But I wonder like, because this is simple, it's simple. It's a simple solution. And I wonder if there's, you know, reaching out to that organization, I'll send you the link. Yeah, send me, send me I, I'd be info. curious to see if that's, that's a great, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah their, and, whole, their whole thing was how do we solve maternal health and maternal, mm -hmm. you know, child or infant mortality, like all of these things. And in, you know, Africa and third world countries, it's like, it's gotta be simple. Wash your hands. It can't cost a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause they're, it's just not there. So what is the simplest mm -hmm. solution to the problem. And I, you know, it, it, the whole time I was like, gosh, I wonder if. Yeah, they, that's a great have... idea. And then uh, seriously, I'm going to, I'm going to look up, like, how do we nominate, get you nominated for like a MedEx or, you know, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Cause obviously you're, I'm kind of sad because most of these podcasts, if not, not all, most, all of them, we use somebody's personal story as kind of the Trojan horse for the information to get in. And we got very little of your personal story, but I no. think that this is, I think, <laughs> I want to know more about you. We should have you back on for a part two for mm -hmm. that purpose. But it's what you're saying is so important. I mean, and so, so screw your personal story. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, you know, you know what? I, I, I can give you one more piece of my personal story as to why I'm so driven on this. Oh, please do. One little thing about me is I am Buddhist. And one of the things about Buddhism is suffering. And 
basically be, by being alive, you're going to suffer. Whether it's, you know, oh my God, Subway made my sandwich wrong or you had a loved one pass away. It's all, it's all a matter of degrees. And so one of the things that Buddhists do is that they try to eliminate suffering. Suffering for ourselves, suffering for those around us and for the world at large. When I was at the bedside taking care of those cancer patients, many of them who were in their last days, my preceptor told me that part of my job was to help them maintain their dignity and humanity. Mm. And so when I was at the bedside, I could only make a difference for those five or six patients that I was taking care of on that shift. So when I moved to nursing informatics and I got involved with staffing and scheduling, I saw that as a way for me to help the facility, to help those leaders, to to maximize and, and make more efficient their staffing and scheduling so that we can provide the, the best patient care possible, thereby potentially having an impact on the health and well-being of all of the patients in that facility and all the staff caring for them. So especially with COVID and you know, reading some of the stories of distress from some of these healthcare givers, seeing the stories about, you know, nurses, you know, leaving their shift and committing suicide. Mm. That is what is driving me because I I really want to make a difference in this staffing, staffing mess. And if I can get just the tiniest bit of improvement in this, because like I said, if we can make just a small improvement in staffing and scheduling with all of the things that it impacts, we, we could potentially reap huge benefits for patients, for staff, and for facilities. Talk about trickle, you, trickle down suffering relief. <laughs> exactly. And so when you think about all the suffering that's been going on with this understaffing, the suffering of the patients, the suffering of the staff that are trying desperately to take care of those patients and then give them good care. And then the suffering that the families of those caregivers endure mm. when that nurse goes home and they're stressed out, they're burned out and they're crying in front of their family and just can't go, you know, how are they you know, saying, how are they going to go in for another shift? That's why I'm doing this. There's, there's, there's a better way out there. I think that we can fix some of these problems if we can get the right people to sit down and have some conversations. As I mentioned earlier, the money's in the system. We've got billions and billions of dollars circulating in the healthcare system out there. And you can't tell me that we can't find a way to reorganize things so that we can solve some of the problems that we're having now. Do you lead with that, Robert? When you approach these people, do you lead? Do you lead with what you just ended with? No, not always. I have a couple of times. What you just said is, I mean, what you've shared the whole time is contagious. But what you just mm-hmm. shared is infectious. Bumps. It makes people want to jump on your bandwagon because mm-hmm. I want to alleviate my because. We're, our lives are losing meaning mm-hmm. by leaps and bounds as as the world becomes more secular, the gods are our stuff and our you know whatever the trendy thing in the culture is right now those are become our religion and our gods because you know mm-hmm. because people have gotten away from it and it's all about a loss to me there's so much of it as a loss of meaning and you I think people are so hungry for meaning. Mm-hmm. that when you lead with what you ended with, mm-hmm. I think you'll have people perk up. Mm-hmm. How can I 
how can I have more meaning in my life? Oh, I'm a hospital administrator and I could just change a budget and alleviate all that suffering. I never thought of that. Yeah, I just agree. A, yeah. My one but degree. No, I agree. I think that is brilliant. And I so much love your passion for collaboration and discussion. And because in a world of such divisiveness right now, that is, that yeah. is going to alleviate suffering. So yeah. Yeah. So how do people, you've touched me even with your (laughs) mathematical nerdy equations. (laughs) You've made made me feel like, (laughs) so your blog, talk about people can, how people can reach up out to you, read about what you're doing, get the word out about you, spread, spread your word and your purpose. Okay. First of all, let me just say, Robert, if you're on LinkedIn and you're listening to this and he posts articles, go follow him and then share his articles because he has a very prolific blog. Okay. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say prolific. You uh, got some stuff that, on there. I went yeah. on there. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting warmed up. Actually, I, I, actually, I, I also started the blog because I was looking for nursing informatics blogs and I just couldn't find any. So I promise you that that there will be other stuff on there than the staffing and scheduling stuff. I've got a lot of other nerdy stuff that I want to get into. Oh, yeah. And if you're a nerd, um, this is good, too. <laughs> yeah. There's nerdery uh, with the world. Yeah. <clears throat> but this stuff is just so important. And it's what, sort of my focus right now. But there, there there will be other content. So my blog is at informaticsnurse.com. So you can definitely go there and check it out. It's called the Nursing Informatics Blog. You can also find me on LinkedIn. And I'm also on Twitter. And those links are, are on my blog as well and on LinkedIn. So yes, please, please look me up. If you have any questions about any of my articles or any of this budget stuff, I'm happy to try to you know, explain it to you. If, you. if you're a nurse manager or somebody that's involved in scheduling at your facility, I would love to chat with you to see if maybe I can help you better understand how to schedule your nurses better. So hopefully you can make them happier. And yeah, if there's anybody that has any, any other uh, contacts in the industry, that could maybe help to move this conversation forward. I do not have all the answers. I'm not putting myself out there saying that I have all the answers. All I'm saying is, is that I believe I've figured out a very important part of the equation. It's another big equation. And I need, I need, I need other people to talk to to figure out about, you know, how do we move this forward? How do we have this, this industry-wide conversation about this problem? And can we all just sit down together and see if we can out some solutions or improvements did did uh, the first time we spoke did i tell you about the i feel like this is redundant i said but did i tell you about the guy in the river that you're that you're reminding me of the story of the man who was pulling people out of the drowning river you did it in some (laughs) yeah i think you did yeah yeah okay i don't get that often i got that but this is the second time with you you're the guy that's telling the people to stop jumping in the river i don't have like yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's and that and that's actually one of the things is that, you know, there's a lot of talk. Everybody's talking about, oh, resilience and appreciation for our staff. And that's and resilience and appreciation, they're great. Don't get me wrong. We should, you know, all try to be more resilient and appreciative of, of each other. But like you said, that quote, which you know, interesting thing about that quote, I did go and look it up because I had heard it before and I've actually used it before. And it gets attributed to Desmond Tutu, which there's some question as to whether or not he said it. But I agree, you know, basically this resilience and appreciation, we're, we're trying to pull people out of the river, right? But, but at some point we have to stop, stop pulling people out of the river and we have to ask, why the heck are they falling, falling into the river? And we need to go upstream 
and figure out why the heck are they falling in? And that's what I'm trying to find people to help me do. Yeah. And one more little personal tidbit about you. When I called him yesterday and I asked him, because I said, call me. And I said, can you move? Can we delay it a little bit? Because, you know, my kids are on vacation in Hawaii. He goes, "Uh, hang on a second. Let me go ask my supervisor. I thought he was at work. (laughs) He's like, let me yell yell across the yard at my supervisor. And I'm like, does he work outdoors? Like, I don't understand. And then he comes back and says, yeah, my wife said that he, she could pick up the kids. <laughs> like, oh, your supervisor. Oh, <laughs> yes. And, and that, That's hilarious. And that, 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 that is a joke. My, my, my wife is a, a wonderful, wonderful woman and has been a huge support for me in, in all of this. Her name is Lisa and she's just, she's just lovely. Is what oh, I'm saying. She's just she's, wonderful. She's got so great we, taste. Yeah, she sure does. We've 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 been together about twenty years, and that's actually another interesting story. Maybe we'll we'll hit that up. That'll be in part two. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Part two nerdery. Yeah, we're gonna have you back after your medex talk. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Sounds good. All right, right, Robert. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Robert. It was so nice to have you on. This is where I stop the recording. We say bye, and I stop the recording, but then we don't actually go. So, okay, everybody, say bye. Thanks, Robert. Bye. Thank you. Renegades.